Hello, I'm Tasman Little, and this morning I took a train from London to Suffolk, where I'm currently sitting at the very colourful kitchen table belonging to Humphrey Burton. Famous broadcaster, producer, director, biographer, and now autobiographer. (laughs) We'll be chatting about all things musical, as well as his recently published book, In My Own Time, Humphrey. It's wonderful to see you, and I remember really clearly the first time I met you, I was about 16 years old, and you were a bit of a childhood hero of mine. Oh. Please continue the story. We met at the um, Young Musician of the Year competition exactly. in Manchester. I think the first year, was it? It was running under what, what, what year did you take part? It was 1981, so I think it was, we were on the second, second competition yes. by then, I uh, think. I knew Yehudi Menuhin. I had done some programs with him uh, and uh, loved him very much, and I knew about the school. I think I'd even vis- visited the school. But I heard you for the first time, totally unexpected, and was overjoyed. And may I say, may I tell listeners that I'm terribly pleased that uh, Tasman and, and her, her sound producer Tom have managed to get here, and I, I'm so pleased that, that, that uh, my book can be mentioned in the hearing of listeners of the Wigmore Hall. Well, it's full of such insights, Humphrey, and um, obviously the early years um, are absolutely fascinating because of the huge development of what was going on. But by the time we get to the late 70s and early 80s, I'm beginning to recognise more and more of the names that you mention. I mean, it's such, there's so much detail and so many famous names contained. So it's quite a, a whirlwind you take us on. I hope you weren't too swamped with all the details. I do try to pack in everybody. My temptation was to mention everybody I heard in Young Musician of the Year because that was a wonderful competition. And uh, there were some brilliant players, not just fiddle players, but uh, every instrument. I think it was quite unique at its time. And certainly for me as a 16-year-old musician, the opportunity to work with um, esteemed broadcasters such as yourself and be interviewed by you, Humphrey. I remember that so clearly. Um, but it was it was a real learning curve for all of us as young musicians and a fantastic stepping stone for so many people. So just going back to um, your links with Yehudi Menuhin, tell me a little bit more about some marvellous anecdotes or, or some overriding memories. I think of Yehudi somehow as a personality, as, as, a, as a presence, so totally gentle, but also so generous. Um, I did a radio series with him for Classic FM, 20 programs, and he, he was so frank about himself. He was longing to tell people, I think, some of the things he hadn't had the courage to mention or hadn't had, hadn't had the nerve to mention about his marriage, for example, and the, the divorce, which was such a shame for him at the time, but it all worked out well. But I, I loved the way he taught. I loved the way he uh, brought all these people together and, and then talked to them as colleagues. Isn't that right? He, he, That's he, absolutely right. I, I had the great opportunity of playing chamber music with him. And he treated us 100% as young professionals yeah. and with great respect. And I think he it didn't really matter how old you were when you received a lesson from him. You were always treated with dignity and kindness. That's correct, and he, he he was a magnet, so that musicians came from all over UK and all all over all over the world, didn't they? You must have met hundreds of different nationalities. You had marvelous colleagues actually in the Young Musician of the Year competition, didn't you? 
was Nicola Benedetti there that time or was actually a little bit later? Oh, Humphrey, you're far too kind. No. Nicola was way later. <laughs> no. Good. You must not cut that, gentlemen. <laughs> Ah, now, before we do continue, because, of course, you've, you've, you wrote a biography about Menuhin, but it wasn't the first one that you wrote. What was the first biography that you wrote? Who... No, it, it, it's true. I, I, when I'm asked to describe what, what I do or what my profession is, I usually say writer and broadcaster. But the writer became enormously important maybe 30, 40 years ago when I started. I was pitchforked into writing the life of the great composer and, and conductor Leonard Bernstein. When I say pitchforked, I mean that there seemed to be nobody else who knew as much as I did about him. Of course, it's not true. There were people who had spent lives working on it. But nevertheless, his death came when I was not at a loose end, but I didn't have a job. I was uh, had been head of music and arts at the BBC, BBC television, but I was getting old for that. I'd been doing it for quite a long time. And so when Bernstein died, he died of smoking, by the way, really, emphysema and all those things that come with too many cigarettes. Uh, when he died, I thought, well, I'm going to try and write his life. Why not? I've been around a lot. And luckily, and I, I found a publisher. I found a publisher uh, and an agent. I couldn't have had better service because Leonard Bernstein's family, which included his lawyer, Robert Lance, they were all involved with writing too. And, and Robbie recommended a particular agent and that particular agent got me Faber and Faber in London, got me Doubleday in New York and I was away with a proper contract to give me enough money to be able to give up all my television work and radio work and simply rent a flat in, in, in uh, actually it was a flat on Columbus Avenue, literally opposite the, the, Lincoln. the Lincoln Center, exactly. Uh, and um, only about six blocks south of where Leonard Bernstein had lived at the Dakota building on Central Park West, and only about six blocks north of where he had his office. So I was dead center in New York to write, and I had enough money, thanks to the contract, to live comfortably and become a kind of super student, age 50-something, living the life of a, of a PhD student, a research student. Brilliant. And I managed to write this book about Bernstein. And I got the hang of writing books and soon afterwards felt I'd like to write one about Yehudi. Usually radio programs comes first and I did a big radio program with Yehudi about, about uh, oh, five years before I wrote the book. Um, about 20 programs, all for classic FM. And Yehudi, I used to go and pick him up in my car at uh, Sussex Gardens or wherever his apartment was. Wonderful apartment he had. Drive him to the classic FM studios, sit him down and then say, now, tell me about this and tell me about that. And, and it all came pouring out. It was wonderful. Since then, I've written another book about William Walton, the composer. A shorter book, but with very good pictures. And most recently, this, this book, In My Own Time. A weird operation, really. It's very strange to write a book about yourself. It's, it's very self-regarding. But I think I've managed to not be too pushy about myself and to be modest and, above all, to pay tribute to my colleagues and friends, which is what it's very much about, making programmes with people. I love the beginning of many of your new chapters, and in particular, Chapter 15, which is titled 1970, Bernstein's Annus Mirabilis. 
and um, particularly the story that opens this chapter, Humphrey. That'll be about Gregory Peck, I expect, yes. Yes, indeed. A few weeks into the first season of Aquarius, my programme on ITV, that is, the phone went at home. And when Christina answered it, a sonorous voice said, This is Gregory Peck speaking. May I speak to Mr. Humphrey Burton? He said, We're going to make some videos with Leonard Bernstein of great performances. And the first one which we want to do is in London, in St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's the Verdi Requiem with the London Symphony Orchestra. Would you be interested in direct? Would I be interested in <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's another thing that, I, you know, what I love, a sort of recurring theme, Humphrey, throughout the book is you're the guy that says yes. yes. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. There's a fantastic sense of adventure and spirit about so all of these of you. new, you know, somebody offers you something and you don't yeah. even think about it. You just go, yes. You're quite right. I'm foolhardy. May I bring us back to this um, very um, extraordinary performance of the Verdi Requiem because I understand there were some problems with um, Corelli and he ended up being replaced by Placido Domingo. Yes, that was the cunning of Leonard Bernstein's then manager, a recording uh, boss from Columbia Records called Skylar G. Chapin. And Skylar Chapin had heard that Franco Corelli was being awkward so he had very cannily made an arrangement with another tenor who was just emerging, and his name was Placido Domingo. And so when Corelli was being difficult after the first run-throughs at St. Paul's Cathedral, Skyler got on the phone, and the next morning there was Placido Domingo. <laughs> Not at that time ready to take over, but a bit clear to Corelli that, uh, that this firm meant business. And yes. In fact, Domingo took over and was quite marvellous. Yes. <laughs> I can remember him, his, his quality was so outstanding. Yes. And the LSO chorus was so excited to be working with Bernstein. It was a free concert. It was the best ticket to be had. It was very much sought after. Thousands of people came to hear it. And we had terrible trouble with retakes because Mr. Bernstein needed to have things done more than once. The, the, the usual problem was ensemble with the chorus and one of the problems was that the chorus was getting restive because it was half past ten by now, and they had late trains to catch at Victoria Station. So from from one take to the next, the size of the choir would be diminished by maybe 20 or 30 singers, which is <laughs> not easy to conceal visually or to conceal in the sound recording. Um, Bernstein was sitting there uh, in, a, in the dean's office, the dean of St. Paul's. Uh, had, he'd kindly made his office available. And he was sitting there surrounded by his supporters and surrounded by his his um, producer, well, that was me, surrounded by everybody concerned with the production. And he kept saying, oh, I want a cigarette. I wish I could have a cigarette. And the, the very welcome sight was the dean. Actually, I saw him fumbling in his, in his, his robes. And then from underneath, he pulled out a packet of cigarettes oh. and offered one to Mr. Bernstein. Bless him. Then they didn't have a light. <laughs> and the dean went back and got a lighter as well. 
was a marvelous, <laughs> a marvelous moment. But but uh, it was a sad thing for Lenny's drug addiction was awful to the um, to the to the weed. But the performance nevertheless triumphed. Bernstein and Beethoven was one of the really big themes of my life because it turned out that the German company Unitel, uh, which was doing the Mahler symphonies, also wanted Bernstein to make something a bit more stable, a bit more um, solid and uh, marketable. And uh, the answer was, as it always is, Ludwig van Beethoven. Beethoven's symphonies were the lifeblood of conductors like Leonard Bernstein. He'd studied them when he was a boy. He'd studied them with Kusevitsky at Tanglewood with the Boston Symphony. And uh, Beethoven was Bernstein's visiting card. And so after a year or two with Mahler, we also moved across to make a complete cycle of the symphonies of Ludwig van Beethoven. And also, the very first year, the CBS company in America, which is a very powerful television station, hired him to make a documentary about the life of Beethoven because it was 1970, which is 200 years since the birth of Beethoven. So we were in Vienna not only to start filming the symphonies, of which, of course, we started with the toughest, the Ninth Symphony, but also to make a film about Beethoven's life. So we went to his birthplace, we went to the uh, the museums where he, we, we sat at the keyboard, He, I didn't, he did. He sat at the keyboard where Bernstein had sat. And we visited the Theater and der Wien, a beautiful small theater, where Beethoven had actually lived when he was composing Fidelio. Um, it's a charming theater, it's a, it has remained a main theater for Vienna. And there he was doing the opera Fidelio with a marvelous Austrian director called Otto Schenk and a terrific international cast, which had James King as uh, Florestan and Gwyneth Jones as uh, Leonora. It was a wonderful cast. And I had the chance to make a film about Fidelio. It was fantastic. Filming the production in the actual theater. And so we had our cameras all over the theater and uh, Schenk would help me what I needed and get everything done. And I remember we had one camera uh, up in the seat, up in the roof, looking down on the whole thing. And we had lights up in the roof as well. And uh, one day we had a rehearsal going and suddenly there was a terrible shout of fire, foyer, foyer. <laughs> and then he was rehearsing the overture, Leonora number three, I think it was. And he was fed up with having to stop because all the men came rushing onto the stage with their fire extinguishers. And then it turned out that the fire was caused by a curtain catching fire. And why did it catch fire? Because our lamps were actually adjacent to the curtain. And no one had noticed that the night before because we weren't using the stage the night before. But next morning when they switched them on, they were quickly frying up beautiful silk curtains. <laughs> and it went, and, the, and the, the head of the theater was so, Herr Her Kutcher, I remember his name was, he was so furious that all his lovely money had been spent on a curtain just going up in flames. It wasn't easy to solace him. In fact, it, we didn't solace him, but we were still allowed to come in because they needed, they needed the money that the CBS company was providing. Dollops and dollops of dollars are going into this production. And we filmed a creditable a series of shots from the opera, which became part of Beethoven. We called it Beethoven's birthday. Uh, it was very serious, very good documentary, very good account of how operas are put together. 
a very good account of the opera itself for Delio and why Beethoven had, was so committed to it. But they, they, they decided they wouldn't put it out on the, on the birthday. They needed a bigger sponsorship and they changed the title. And so instead of Beethoven's birthday, which is quite a good bright title, it was called A Celebration in Vienna, which it was, but it was still, uh, I enjoyed it as much for the Fidelio as for the Ninth Symphony, which we organized to be in the great new concert hall, the Concert House, which was built in 1910 or something like that. It was part of the Jugendstil of old, of nearly new Vienna. And that was my early introduction to another strand in my Viennese life, which is filming all the symphonies and working with the Vienna Philharmonic. Of course, Beethoven wasn't just a Viennese thing, although I loved working with the Vienna Philharmonic. Much later in my career, I was presenting a concert at a concert venue called Wolf Trap. You've probably been there, south of Washington, I think, near Washington anyway. Uh, the conductor was Mr. Slav Rostropovich, and Leonard Bernstein was deeply in love with Rostropovich. They loved working together, and also with Vishnevskaya, Rostropovich's wife. And the Washington Orchestra was being conducted by Rostropovich. So he invited Lenny to come over, and they put on the triple concerto. And I can't imagine a greater group of people playing. The fiddle part was taken by Yehudi Menuhin, the cellist Rostropovich, the pianist was Andre Previn, and the conductor was Bernstein. And this is a terrible time in Bernstein's life because his wife, Felicia, had just died. She died of cancer. But in a way, she'd also died of a broken heart. At least that's what many of her friends felt because Bernstein had decided the previous year to leave her and start living with his assistant, a young man called, called Tommy, who was a researcher and a bright, very bright writer, lovely man. But the Bernstein household had been totally split by this horrible separation. So Lenny was not all that happy at that performance of doing the triple concerto, but what he did, it was a wonderful example of the way music could somehow help you out of, it, out of, it, out of the troubles. He conducted with such tension, such drama, such total involvement that all, the, all everybody was absolutely drenched with, with perspiration, but also with the emotional effort of catching up with Bernstein's demands for this music. Have you ever played it? I have indeed, and I can completely empathise with, yes. with the instrumentalists. I mean, it's very much a cello uh, piece, isn't it? Um, and in fact, the violin writing is very awkward indeed, and the, the piano plays you know, a, a slightly secondary role for yeah. an awful lot of it, yeah. but there's some monumentally difficult passages for each of the instrumentalists, so I can well imagine yeah. that everybody would have been quite breathless well, by the end of it. I was knocked out by it, because we weren't able to talk about the private circumstances. It wasn't I, I, I'm quite right, too. I didn't want to talk about it, but nevertheless, I could see that Bernstein was driven on. <laughs> it just increased my admiration for, for a great artist. One of the bits in the book that I really loved reading about yes. was Leonard Bernstein's spontaneous moment helping you out of a bit of a situation. <laughs> You're talking about my marriage. I am indeed. Yes, yes. Well, yes, um, Skylar, Lenny's manager, uh, had made a habit of getting friends who were going to get married. He made a habit of getting them married while they were in New York. And he, one of his best friends was the mayor of New York, 
Mayor Lindsay, John Lindsay, and he got John Lindsay to get out a license for Christina and me to get married. And he had a church just around the corner from where Lenny lived, uh, where we could repair. Um, and he arranged for us to actually get married at this church. But we needed an organist. Well, the first person I wanted to get as an organist, I, I rang up my friend Glenn Gould, <laughs> who it, I knew had been an organist when he was um, a, a young man in, in Toronto. And he was very sweet, but he said, don't you, uh, you haven't heard maybe, but I, I, I don't fly anymore. Uh, and uh, true, he didn't. So he, he couldn't do it. Lenny, I was in Lenny's apartment and I, I uttered my disappointment. And he said, oh, I'll play for you. I couldn't believe my ideas. <laughs> I had no idea whether <laughs> I had no idea whether he could play the organ, but I, I just assumed he could. And sure enough, he did. And um, when Christine and I got to the church next day, it was locked. And um, I, I said, "What's the problem?" He said, "Some man playing the organ." He insisted that I wouldn't let anybody in. And that man was Leonard Bernstein. He'd asked to, he'd have the doors locked while he practiced, and he played beautifully. He played beautifully, and we had a lovely service, very short, and uh, nice music. And Glenn Gould's possibility had not been mentioned by me, luckily, to anybody. So everybody was just very, very happy to have Bernstein playing the organ. He was brilliant. So, Humphrey, let's head back to the beginning. I was intrigued to read about the very interesting schooling you received at Long Dean, not one's average educational experience. I was very lucky to be able to go to a progressive school when I was a young boy. A progressive school uh, meant that it had um, decent food, for example, had food reform, which my mother looked after. She was the chief cook and planner of the cooking. She'd got a job there as a midwife, that was her first job, and she'd gone there what, to, to be midwife to the headmaster's wife who was having a baby. And how old were you at that time, Humphrey? I guess I was about 12. Um, when I went to Long Dean. And the amazing thing was that not only were there no rules, not hardly any, but there were girls everywhere because it was a code school as a progressive. <laughs> and it, it had been a beacon for Jewish refugees, one of whom was a man called Paul Hamburger, who later became a very good pianist and, and was hired by the BBC. But when he went there, his job was to work in the garden. And he got sacked because he, he hoed up all the, all the asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nothing to eat that week. <laughs> no, not, much, not, not much to eat that week, no. But Long Dean uh, was a school uh, on a principle of Quaker warmth towards every, every branch of the community, uh, of love and friendship to everybody. It was um, self-governing. We made up our own rules. I was chairman of the school committee that's photographed of me in the book, looking very pompous as a chairman. One of many marvellous photographs. I loved that about the book. Thank you. It was very well researched by a friend of mine, Maureen Murray. She, she knew how to find photographs and she knew how to get films, freezer frames. There's a wonderful photograph in the book of Paul Tortelier. It's taken from the film. I've never seen a more beautiful photograph. Yes, it's very it's vivid. Lovely. Yes. Tell us, t tell me some more about the uh, the progressive nature of this school and the, and I I can see you already were taking the reins of of command as it were if you were if you were heading committees and things. Yes, I guess I must have been even then a bit bit obnoxiously anxious to to, to rule the roost, but uh, it, 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 
It didn't have any kind of public school uh, overturns. You didn't have to write lines or get get hours of detention, none of that. And what subjects so, were you taught? I, I was taught, I, I did my O-levels in the basics, English, French, geography, history. Didn't do German, unfortunately, or Latin. Didn't do anything very scientific. But we were taught quite well. Five of us took the school certificate, but we were the first five. Before that, there'd never been more than one boy at a time or one girl at a time uh, per year. In other words, the school wasn't uh, uh, basically a scholastic factory. It was basically a beautiful community in which ladies who looked after the cows and the goats and the chickens shared the, the communal life with the pupils on the one hand and with the teachers and with the matrons and all those other people. It was a, it was a marvelous, friendly experiment. And although the school closed back in the 1950s, we all enjoyed it so much that we still, those of us who are still alive, still meet uh, 40 years later to live again those warm days of, of Long Dean. It was a, a, in a beautiful location. It was a, a, in what is now a golf club called Stoke Poges. And there was a big house called Stoke Park, which was a beautiful stone building. And then this was in the wartime, can you imagine, 1940s. The school had to move because the war looked like it was coming to an end and the owner wanted to turn it back into a country club. And so we had to find somewhere else to go. And the owners, the Guinness, Mr. and Mrs. Guinness, they looked around and they found somewhere in Kent called Chittingstone, which is um, a National Trust village. And the house had a lake and lots of playing fields. It had also been a school before. But I have to tell you, the location of this place was absurd. It was 30 miles south of London on a direct flight route from the northeast steppe of France, where all the uh, rockets, the V2 rockets, and where all the V1 flying bombs were situated. So it was right on the flight path to London. And we did get one or two bombs. There was a bomb in the cow shed up the road. We did hear also the flying bombs. Uh, both in Stoke Park, which is in Buckinghamshire, near Slough, and in Chillingstone, which is in Kent, um, not far from Edenbridge. And there we heard the flying bombs. Now, I don't know whether you have ever heard a recording of them, but yes, the clatter of them as they're coming across, uh, and the fact that if the clatter stops, you know you're in trouble, because you it's them. the swishing as the plane, mm -hmm. the rocket comes down. But I don't want to suggest that school was um, <laughs> a time when we were just target practice for the Nazis. It wasn't like that at all. School was a very happy time, played lots of great games, learnt very good languages, learnt lots of good French, and um, learned about living with other people and making rules that we could, could be kept. I was very proud of going to Long Dean. So Humphrey, after your school days, you did national service, you graduated from Cambridge, spent a year working in France for the French government. Intriguingly, you turned down an offer to work for MI5, and then you began your career at the BBC initially as a studio manager for radio. But things really took off when you successfully applied for a job in TV. Well, it's kind of you to put it like that. In fact, my early career in BBC was in BBC Radio at Broadcasting House and the various studios in and around the city of London, the centre of London. I'd already applied to the BBC 
very luckily, really, I see now, got a post as a studio manager. They're what's now being called the engineers. The studio manager actually runs the studio. He puts out the right number of microphones, and he sits at the control booth, twiddling the knobs, fading up the man speaking, turning the other one off and backwards and forwards. And it's a terrific job. And it was, in fact, what I thought. I was a way into a world working with classical music. I was angry with the BBC because they wouldn't give me a, 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 the money which I thought I deserved because as a, as a studio manager, I was actually introducing programs. I was doing my own thing, but they, they hadn't got a post for me. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm off. I'm going to look for something else. And I saw this marvelous advert working in the field of the arts on television, a new program which has just been started called Monitor. And as luck would have it, I got that job. I guess I, I, I probably had shown that I could make things be useful. The move to television was one of the most astonishing moments in my whole life. So I went to Monitor, and it was run by a mad Welshman. No, he wasn't mad. A craggy Welshman who had lovely ideas uh, and a great personality. And his name, I'm sure older listeners will remember, Hugh Weldon. Weldon, W-H. And Hugh was H-U-W, because he was Welsh. And he was running this program, Monitor, with half a dozen directors and producers and researchers. And it was a fortnightly program. BBC was going very carefully, very cautious, didn't want to have a weekly program, fortnightly program, and in I went. We had a meeting, the first, first step, he said, Burton, you know about music, you should look after Madame Callas. <laughs> me look after Madame Callas. Yeah, and what I had to do was to go to keep her cheerful while she was being made up to do an interview uh, about singing La Traviata. And she was famous for having rows with management. She'd had a huge walkout in, in New York. She was called the Tigress, which didn't cheer me up all that much when I went off to go and look up. But I hadn't anything to do. There was a man at the back of the room. He was wearing a Homburg hat and a heavy overcoat. And that turned out to be her husband. And I think he'd come to collect her fee because that's what husbands and managers did in those days. Anyway, nothing happened at the interview. Uh, I didn't make any impression on her. I never never met her properly. Never never worked with her or anything, unfortunately. It was just a marvelous So she, she didn't need cheering up Alas, she didn't, no. <laughs> but one astonishing thing which I remember, which I've got no proof of because I've never seen it, but I'm sure it happened. Hugh Weldon was hovering in the studio when she was interviewed. She'd only agreed to come on if she could be interviewed by Sir David Webster, who was the boss of the Royal Opera. Now, this is most unusual for Hugh to give anybody else a chance to do an interview, but to have Callas was such a coup that he, he accepted it and went along. Then I was on the studio floor and I saw David Webster and Maria Callas, and it was a very feeble sort of, how do you feel about singing in London? Or It was really pit-pat stuff. It was very feeble. And he was pacing up and down, very restless in the wings. And then I saw him, unbelievably, and knowing, I knew this wasn't planned, he walked into the set between Callas and Webster, and he said, Madam Callas, if my, I think I've got this right. I, 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 it's come from somewhere. Madam Callas, if, my, if I may interpose for a moment, when you agreed to appear on the Monitor program, you stipulated that you should have only Sir David Webster as your interlocutor some such post phrase. May I ask why? 
And she looked him up and down. And I swear she said, because, Mr. Weldon, Sir David is a gentleman. Collapse of stout parties or enough. Ouch. <laughs> it, it may be all a dream on my part. I've, if anybody's listening who knows anything about BBC Archive and could find speak, this speak interview, <laughs> it's an unanswered question in my book, mm. but it was a great moment. And working with Weldon was, was a whole series of great moments, partly because he inspired such loyalty and such creativity in the people he, he hired. And one of the people he nursed from early days on was a, a director called Ken Russell. Ken Russell's not quite so famous now as he was in those days, but he later became very well known as a great film director. He made Sons and Lovers, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and in those days, he was making short films, 15, 20-minute films. And uh, I was put on to work with him. Our first film was about Gordon Jacob, and that's when I had my first commentary. This is not in the book, I don't think. I had my first commentary on television. Gordon Jacob likes to get up with a cup of tea in the morning. It was so <laughs> boring. <laughs> well, I think you progressed a bit after that, didn't you, Humphrey? <laughs> <I> did, <don't laughs> but uh, Ken wanted to do it because he wanted to film bicyclists on the road to Southampton. Uh, and uh, Gordon Jacob was a rather, I hope be forgiven for saying, a rather a colourless personality who didn't take for us very much. Um, it wasn't Ken's idea to think, I think it was Weldon's idea to make the film in the first place. He, was, he, he arranged things like God Save the Queen for brass, brass bands and so on. But anyway, the film was made and uh, Ken Russell and I went on to make a film about Elgar, which was, um, well, I'm hesitating on what to say because I love it so much, but it, it was generally thought of to be a, a fine work of film biography. And uh, Hugh didn't want us to do it. He thought, he, I remember he said to me, it's caviar for the general, old boy, he said, to make films about uh, this Catholic composer. But we made it. And I think probably the best passage in my book is my account of the struggle we had making it because Hugh uh, turned against it very strongly because Ken had uh, arranged a very moving sequence of World War I soldiers who had been poison gassed and were blinded. And they, you see them marching, one arm on the, one hand on the arm of, a, a hand on the shoulder of the one in front, hopeless, really disgusting. And um, the music Ken used for this was Land of Hope and Glory. This Land of Hope and Glory was a, 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 a pomp and circumstance march, which had been turned by the nation at 1914-15 into a popular recruiting song. And it was horrible to see these men yes. uh, 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 and hear this music. Yeah. And Hugh wouldn't have it. He was the editor of the program. That means the producer, the boss. And he was a fighting man himself. He was a, he'd been in the army. And he didn't think this was fair on the soldiers or fair on Elgar. We were in the corridors of Ealing Film Studios. There was nowhere to sit. There was no conference room or anything. Uh, um, but we had to fight this out. And uh, there's a very good photograph of, of Weldon in the book, yes, it's, waiting. Yes, it's and, a very and, and powerful bit. Looking pensive mm. and Ken looking blustered. And uh, we finally, after about four hours, hammered out a solution which made it clear that Elgar hated the way his music was being used. And that commentary was recorded the following morning and worked. 
and tipped the film in favor of one of the most um, moving pieces of, of, of uh, war film that I've ever seen. And it was lovely working with Ken because he had a terrific sense of humor. Uh, but when he wanted to do something serious, and this was something very serious because he was like Elgar, a Catholic, he, he wanted to show sympathy with Elgar's whole way of thinking. Just a powerful piece of work. Humphrey, tell me about your first experience working at Wigmore Hall. When I was on Monitor, I was looking all the time for interesting musical subjects that weren't being treated anywhere else in the media. And uh, one of the things that I liked was the idea of competitions. And the Wigmore Hall, I noticed, was organising a competition for singers, for tenors, to be exact. I had a colleague who worked at the Royal Opera House called Bernard Keefe. Uh, he was very good at essays about different musical subjects, and he lashed onto this, what makes a tenor. And of course, he, in his job, was always on the lookout for promising young tenors. So we went along to the Wigmore Hall, and we arranged to have a camera at the back so that all the competitors would be filmed. It sounds a bit presumptuous to say that we would find the winner, but we did. The winner they found, I can't remember who was on the jury, but the winner they found was a certain Philip Langridge, who at that time was, was unknown and became one of the great British tenors of, of the 20th century. And so I was very proud of that. And it led to all sorts of other competition films, of which in the end, the Young Musician of the Year, I suppose, was the most famous. There's a feeling throughout the book that you're not one to let the grass grow under your feet. Instead, you've, you seem to always prefer to take risks and indeed court challenges. You could obviously safely have stayed put at the BBC and had a highly successful career there. So what made you take a chance to join David Frost at LWT? LWT stands for London Weekend Television and was what it's now, I think, called ITV. I was standing one afternoon outside the TV studios at, in Wood Lane, and there was David Frost, who was already famous. He did a show called That Was The Week That Was, which was outrageously sort of wicked about, about the government and, 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 and the society. And he said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. He knew roughly who I was, because we had mutual friends. So glad to see you. I, I, I was thinking of asking you whether you'd like to join us. I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, a, a group of... of like-minded producers. We're, we're, we're working together, putting together a company because we think we could do it better than the companies that are existing now like Rediffusion and ATV. We want to put together a bid to, to create a commercial television company uh, for the next round of licenses. They used to happen every year or so. Would you be interested? Would I be interested? Now, I should have said no <laughs> because... I was having a very good time making very programs that I really enjoyed making. But I was curiously fascinated by Frost, who's a very clever man anyway, and his ideas of getting hold of the best program makers and giving them their head, rather than too many chamber music concerts and recitals and so on, which was part of the old BBC tradition. So I did say yes, and I got uh, the boot, had to leave the BBC when it became clear that I was a major contender, but I got the job and I ran drama. I was head of drama for a couple of years. That didn't go too well because I knew nothing about making plays. Then when the drama collapsed, my boss at the time, one of them I called Cyril Bennett, 
he said, well, Bill, you better get together and do what you want to do, make, make, some arts, make an arts magazine. I had already got this idea in my mind, but as a, a stage two project, not a stage one project. Suddenly it became a stage one project. And this program, I, I brought it out of nothing in that thing about 24 days. And we were able to create a program which, well, I was in New York, I was in Los Angeles, and I went to a show called Hair. And I all this num wonderful number, this is yeah, the dawning the of the age, age of, of Aquarius. Aquarius. Yes. I thought Aquarius, that's a good name for a title. And there were the people who'd written it were in the, I met them in Los Angeles. I said, would you, would you mind if I use your title as a, as a program? No, they said, feel free. And that kept me going for the next five or six years. We've already spoken about the fact that you witnessed the burgeoning career of Placido Domingo, but that wasn't the only career that you, you caught at the very, very beginning because there was, for instance, the Battle of the Baritones. The Battle of the Baritones was what they called a particular episode inside the Cardiff Singer of the World. And my job when I was head of music and arts was to encourage everywhere in the BBC to, to do more music and arts. And there's a lovely industrious producer called Mervyn Williams in Cardiff who come up with this idea of having a competition for finding young singers. Wales is the home of great singing, and uh, the Welsh had some great competitors to go in for it. But they wanted to bring people from all over the world to sing at Cardiff on the stage of the new St. David's Hall, a lovely, lovely acoustic, incidentally. It is a lovely acoustic. And so one year, Mervyn asked me to produce it. I think they wanted it, it wasn't perhaps quite as zippy as they'd hoped it would be, and I think they wanted the young musician look applied to the Cardiff singer. I was only too happy to go down. I love being in Wales. It's such a warm-hearted place always, and they're so keen on music. The two singers who struck us in the round I was producing were Bryn Terville and Dmitry Vorostovsky. Bryn, everyone knows about. Dmitry had astonishing white hair, and he had a most beautiful face, but above all else, he had the most wonderful voice. And he sang Verdi without any sense of, you never heard him breathe, but it was effortless. It was just long, long lines, as if he never took a breath, yet there was always plenty of power there. And it, it, it was just, Brim was so dramatic, and Brim did the Flying Dutchman, it was gorgeous, but, but, but very German. Wolostowski um, was very Italianate and very smooth, and I just loved him. And um, we put them, they were both on, and we, we, we put them side by side. Wolostowski, I remember he had to borrow money in order to buy a suit so he could actually appear looking decent at the, <laughs> at the, at the, at the final. But they, they both made huge impressions. Both alas, amazing singers, yeah. Alas, Wolostowski died of. Didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, but he um, achieved huge yeah. um, a, a affection, uh, well, all over the world, obviously. I'll never forget Dimitri singing at the last night of the proms where he did the Toreador song. And oh, yes. he just absolutely was relishing singing in that environment. But at the end, in a marvellously showman way, he produced a Union Jack to great applause. <laughs> <laughs>
was a wonderful artist. And that was one of the joys of my work, that not being an artist myself, meeting these great people, whether it was some um, great fiddlers like Menuhin, who we've mentioned already, or dancers. Maynard Gielgud was a wonderful dancer I worked a lot with. Jerome Robbins, of course, and the whole dance world in New York. They were all such excitements for me. And I remember making a film about a theater company in, in New York, in the Central Park. And one of the women was called Meryl Streep. She was totally unknown at the time, wow. but she was fantastic. <laughs> the whole thing. So there is a line in the book where you say, I seemed to thrive on larger-than-life personalities. I think, <laughs> I think that's another theme that runs right throughout the book. It is. It's true. Just continuing the singing theme, uh, you clearly get on very well with singers, and in particular, you got on extremely well with Kiri Takanawa. I got on hugely well with Kiri. She was just right for, for television. And I did a BBC One series program called Call Me Kiri, where she sang with the Maori rugby team and she sang a duet with Harry Seacombe. But she also sang classical music and she sang, well, she just sang everything. She was, and I'd, 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 I'd already done an opera with a De Fledermaus. And later on at the BBC, I remember I did Manon Lescaut with Kiri and Placido Domingo at the Royal Opera. She, she was unending in her, in her quality as an artist. Tell me a little bit about the Golden Ring and this visionary man cultural. I'm very glad you've asked me about the Golden Ring because the Golden Ring, I think, is probably the most important program I ever made. It's a, a film about the ring, about Wagner's ring cycle. I was in my office at the BBC one day when a, a couple of recording engineers from Decca, that's what I thought of them, recording engineers from Decca, uh, came to see me. They, they urged me to think about making a film about their work. They were producing the complete ring cycle in stereo. And this was the first time that this would be done. Their names are John Culshaw, Gordon Parry. He was the chief engineer. John was the director of productions. And uh, how can you make a television program about a recording studio? I didn't really know. Um, but I went to Vienna, where their offices were, where they had their studio. They'd, they'd converted a ballroom, the Sophienzaal, into a studio. They used the main dancing area as the floor where the orchestra was. And they had separate little rooms for sound effects and horns being blown and shrieks being shouted and so on. <laughs> and I was very impressed. And I had a friend already at Vienna, in Vienna, and the Austrian television producer friend took him as well. And he was impressed too. And the the deal I did, which is quite unusual, was I managed to persuade Austin Television to provide a television unit. Because with film, you always have to stop after 10 minutes to change the, change the magazines. You can't just go on forever and ever. That doesn't do very well with Wagner, does it? <laughs> doesn't go at all well with Wagner. So television is the answer, because with tape, you can go on and on and on and on. So I, I got television cameras. I took a film camera as well, and my colleague John Drummond who was running the camp? He was sort of my chief thinking thinking tank, but also sorting out what to do. And we just taped session after session. And the mystery of it, the magic of it, was the relationship between the producer, John Culshaw, and the conductor, George Schulte, George Schulte the Hungarian, who I did know already. I'd worked with him already, and I, I loved, liked him a lot, and his wife too, Valerie. And 
when I got there, I realized that Sholte was being not dominated, but was definitely listening to what Culshaw said. Culshaw and Parry were, were true Wagnerians. Sholte was a great musician, and he responded to every great composer. And he could do a decent Beethoven, and he could do a decent Wagner, he could do them both. He got together a great team, hadn't he? John Culshaw got together a very good team. He, had, it was, he reminded me of me, because he and Decker had young producers and some slightly older producers too, who all were feeding in to the boss, to the same thing. They were all aiming to get the very best quality products. And the most extraordinary singers as well. The Schulte concept was a singer's concept. Culture knew all the singers because he was crazy about, about Wagner and he spent years and years in Wagner, homeland, namely Bayreuth. Culture knew who he wanted to have singing and what kind of thing, but he knew about tempo as well. And one of the most revealing things in The Golden Ring is a scene after the funeral march of Siegfried when you'd expect Schulte to know exactly what he wanted. But there's Culture sitting there looking at the score saying, it's not the right tempo, it's too slow. Got to get it faster. And, 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 and I remember Schulte said, I'll kill you if you're wrong. I'll kill you. <laughs> remember, we have 2,000 shilling bet on this. <laughs> and um, they did indeed. I was so proud to have got this by a snooping TV camera. Yes. They didn't know they were being watched and listened to. They were totally wrapped up in what they were doing. And that, in a sense, is what the whole of the Golden Ring is about, is they're being onlooked, but they're not swanking. They're not showing off. They're just determined to get the job done and to be done as well as possible. The, the, the Decker company was famous for its practical jokes. And there was one practical joke that they played, which I can't resist telling you. There's a scene in the Siegfried where Brunhilde, the heroine, calls for her horse because she wants to ride on the horse into the funeral pyre that's being built on the banks of the River Rhine for her hero husband, Siegfried, who's just been slain most viciously by Hagen. It's a, it's a t t terrific scene. So she calls for her horse and she says to the horse, you know what I want you to do? I want you to drive into that fire. I want to go into that fire and be reunited with Siegfried. And the Decker boys had had the wit to hire a racehorse. <laughs> and we, have, we had our film camera outside showing them usher this horse into the Sophian cell, ushering up the broad st stone staircase. <laughs> And leading it, the horse, into a beautiful ballroom with chandeliers, uh, uh, parquet floor, and you can hear the horse clop, clop, clopping across the floor. It's a wonderful moment. <laughs> and it's very surrealistic. And then I cut back to the studio, and there's Birgit Nilsson singing her heart out, and the orchestra trying to keep up with her, and everything very powerful. And then she says, Grana, mein Ross, Grana, my horse. And she, 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 she starts to sing about what she wants to do with the horse and commit harikari in the flames. The carer of the horse, as she sings grana, you see the carer of the horse come to the bottom of the frame with a horse. <laughs> <laughs> 
walking across the stage and walking up to Brunhilde's behind her. And the horse parades around her while she's doing this in the orchestras. They, they break up. Everybody's absolutely yeah. in chaos because that's all such fun. And Scholz is like, oh, yes, that's his sticker on. Oh, but he's fed up. He wants to get back. Come on, back to work. But no one would go back to work. They're all in such humor about it. It's a lovely moment. And it's the last light touch before the final scene of, of the whole opera. And a wonderful thing in that last scene, which is the great um, funeral march music uh, and the great resonant renunciation music, Suddenly, no one had told me this was going to happen. Suddenly, all the first violins stand up, so they're that much nearer to the microphones. And it's so powerful. Yes, and then there's that top note. I can't remember. I think it's a top D or something like that. High. It's very hard and it's very high. Yes. But um, I remember actually hearing a, a fantastic. But the violins playing it when they're playing yeah. all like soloists. Yeah. The whole of the Vienna Philharmonic first orchestra. First yes. violin department. It's wonderful. But that's probably why. You, you've actually answered a question of mine because I didn't realise why it sounded so good um, in, in Schulte's well, recordings. Well, I, I think it's basically because Schulte, he caresses the orchestra. Mm. It's sweet. It, it's deeply but, powerful. But it's also very passionate at very that passionate. moment. Very passionate. Very passionate. You're quite right. And it's most lovely. I'm glad you like it already. Have you seen the programme? No, I've heard his recording. But right. now I'm going to go and buy it. Please do. During your career, of course, you have seen such huge changes and development in broadcasting, but you've also witnessed some huge world changes. And there's a marvellous passage where you talk about the Berlin Freedom Concert. The Berlin Freedom Concert was something which was organised by Leonard Bernstein at the time that the Germanys were coming together when the um, East Berlin was collapsing, when the whole... Um, experiment of East Germany was was falling apart. And the Germans were so excited about the possibility of unification that they decided uh, to mount a concert, which they called the Freedom Concert, because Berlin, of course, was a city in Germany which was most obviously divided by the horrible wall. So Justus Franz, who was a pianist, who was a friend of Bernstein's, and who ran the music for Bavarian television, who had the most wonderful orchestra, he arranged for the Bayerische Rundfunk Orchestra to play the Ninth Symphony, the Choral Symphony, but with boys from a from a or children from a children's choir adding to the top voices, and the chorus from the Munich chorus. Odd idea that Munich was going to come up and celebrate Berlin's unification, but that's what was happening. And Bernstein was going to conduct it all, and Unitel was going to televise it because it was Bernstein and they had a contract with him, and I was going to direct the telecast. And it was going to be the most wonderful moment in history. And it was. I remember a few months earlier, my wife and I had been woken up in the middle of the night in our hotel by the shouts of men on the wall pull, pulling it down. That must have been extraordinary. It was very. And then on the day, the, the, the days of the actual concerts, only a couple of days after the unification had happened, all the Unter den Linden was crammed full of people just enjoying walking in free, free Berlin. And the performance was very strong. They got singers from the four different occupying countries. And they got orchestral players to come in as well, from France and from uh, Russia and from UK and from America. There was a fiddle player from the New York Philharmonic. 
and there were a couple of players from the London Symphony Orchestra. It, 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 it was all put together by Leonard Bernstein and by his agent at that time was called Harry Kraut, and they were very clever at doing this. And the broadcast was just taken over by all the, uh, virtually all, every country in, in Europe was showing it. And I, it's the proudest moment of my life, I had to do the commentary saying, this is Berlin. <laughs> I can't remember what I said, but I said, I was moved by the fact that I was there celebrating the reunification of the great city of Berlin. And um, the performance was very powerful. I suppose if you're going to sum me up as to what, 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 what Humphrey Burton had done, it would be I'd made Leonard Bernstein's work as a conductor that much more available to the world at large. But I think I would, wouldn't stop at Leonard Bernstein. I'm very proud to have worked with Lenny. But I'm also proud to work with Schulte, as we've just been saying. And I, I, I just like sharing music with other people. If I had a title, I'd probably call my book Sharing Stone, rather than In My Own Time. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> One of the things I've enjoyed so much about reading your book, and it's a, a thread that runs right throughout, is the the fact that you just love the excitement of recording, you prepare with great assiduousness, the, the camera angles, and they're, they're well described in the book. But one story that really exhibits this fantastically is the Spoleto Brahms Requiem story, where it's your never-ending appetite for creativity and adventure and risk-taking. You've just got one shot at this. Tell us exactly what happened. The conductor for this Brahms Requiem was, uh, was Thomas Shippers. He was a very handsome figure, um, uh, 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 much admired by musicians all over the world. Um, I'd, I'd worked with him, I'd interviewed him for my radio program, Transatlantic Turntable, and I got on well with him. And so I got his blessing to bring my film crew onto the piazza in Spoleto, and he'd given me permission to move around as, as, as quietly as we could. So we were less than ideally equipped to deal with Johannes Brahms's long melodic lines because of only having an ordinary Ariflex camera, which only had a four-minute magazine. So we couldn't really do any great long scenes, or so I thought. Anyway. We'd cope with it, and after half an hour, most of what I had planned was in the can. But I felt uneasy. Our shots came nowhere near to matching the grandeur of the setting or of the music. I glanced up at the cathedral behind the choir. High in the tower, I noticed an opening. Maybe it was a belfry, a window of some sort. Could this be the location from which to shoot a final image? Well... Leaving the crew outside, I ran to the back of the church, found the doorway to the tower, and raced up interminable flights of stairs. <laughs> the view from the top was indeed breathtaking. In my mind, I could see a great closing shot. I scampered down the stairs again to ground level, instructed the sound recorders to carry on taping until the last bar of the Requiem. And then I led my little team back up the stone staircases between us, carrying the camera, a spare film cassette and battery. I, th I think I had the tripod on my shoulder. It was a double race against time. Would we be ready to shoot before the Requiem ended? Because they'd already started on the last movement. And would there be sufficient light in the sky for the image to register on film? 
My cameraman, John Ray, consulted his light meter and thought yes, but he soon determined that the only way to get the shot I wanted was to abandon the tripod and hang the camera halfway out of the opening in the tower. If I clung like grim death to his hips, Johnny could rest his camera on the stone window shelf and tilt it down sufficiently to frame a shot on the conductor, who was almost vertically beneath us. And then the camera could slowly be panned up and Johnny could zoom out towards the skyline. But a quick rehearsal showed that the camera's exposure would have to be modified to take account of the falling light level. We could only execute this delicate operation if the assistant cameraman stretched out into space and, on Johnny's command, adjusted exposure control. This was a perilous manoeuvre. There was no chance of a second take. The light was going ever faster, and the music was rising to its final climax. Drama. There was no monitor screen for me to check on Johnny Ray's progress. Only he could see the flailing arms of the maestro in his viewfinder. Only he could attempt to get the focus sharp on the baton. With the delicacy of a surgeon wielding a scalpel, Johnny slowly widened the conductor shot to discover the strings of the orchestra, desk by desk around the maestro shippers' rostrum. And then he found the woodwinds and the brass. And finally, as he zoomed out, the chorus filling his entire screen. And then in a continuous movement, the camera zoomed out and panned further and further up to reveal the vast audience seated out on the slopes of the Piazza del Duomo. Hundreds of people, eagerly attentive to the closing pages of the Brahms. And as the camera continued its upwards tilt, the houses on Spoleto's skyline came into view, and then the Umbrian hills. They were filling the screen, sombre but majestic. Even at twilight, it was beautiful, and what the Americans call the money shot, although it had cost us nothing. Sweat, yes, but blood or tears, no. I was never happier directing a film. Humphrey, having known you for all these years, I can't tell you what an honour and a privilege and a joy it is to have spent this afternoon reminiscing with you and having more of your insights into your fantastic and interesting life. Um, you've done a very good job in your book of um, giving us such a flavour of all these extraordinary experiences that well, you've lis had. Listeners can see me blushing, I'm sure. They must <laughs> feel me blushing. So I just want to say thank you so much for talking to me about your autobiography in my own time. And I hope many people read and enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you indeed, Tasman. It's been a joy to talk to you and, and, and wonderful to remember all those lovely performances you've given over the years. And greetings to Wigmore Hall, my favourite home for music in London.